Today is September 22nd. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border is Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are now on Treaty 7, signed in 1877, and coincidentally today is the anniversary on September 22nd, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all Indigenous that are First Nation, Métis, Inuit status, or non-status across Turtle Islands are the keepers of these lands. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that any misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I think I know as I walk down the red road. My name is Michelle Robinson, and I was born in Calgary as Michelle Elliott, another very English name which has afforded me great privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to the area of Clinchotine Indahe in Dene, or Satun uh, Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. My spirit name is Red Thunder Woman, given to me in ceremony. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. A huge thank you to Amanda, Amy, Ashley, Diana, Dustin, Joni, Judy, Julie, Kenna, Matt, Nathan, and Sharon for signing up. If you value listening and can afford to give, I want to say thank you. For those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I would love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. We're now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Nativecalgarian.com is also up. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to just speak freely without interruption, without the tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. Many people do not want to hear Indigenous opinions, but sure want to tell theirs. And usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous ways of knowing, colonialism, um, the constant surveillance we face as Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. You know, people are dealing with internalized racism. So there are gatekeepers that survive off of the status quo, or people who are really in their trauma and... Uh, deplete a lot of the resources. External and internalized racism is an every single day reality for Indigenous people. And I think non-Indigenous can't comprehend that. Um, This is how I needed to be heard was through a podcast because all of the uh, mediums are, are too colonial. I just hope that one day my family, my daughter, my grandkids, I hope, will be proud in the future by discussing these present day issues in the way that we understand. So I always want to start by talking about uh, culturally safer spaces, and you can create safer spaces for Indigenous people of color and LGBTQ2 plus to speak as well. But you have to be intentional in order to do that. So there's some 
uh, regular boundaries that I can hope to teach you in the hopes you will do that. Uh, here to help.bc.ca has a good little write up on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. And uh, just real quickly, you know, do something. Having good intentions is not enough. Take action to make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions with those from with more understanding. Find good allies. Create a support system for yourself where you can help and advocate for culturally safe approaches. Take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, and ask questions. But don't always expect this learning to come from Indigenous people. Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. Question everything you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes. Commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. Internalized racism is a situation that occurs in a racist system where there's an oppressed group by the supremacy and the dominance of the dominant group, maintaining a, and participating in a set of attitudes, beliefs, social structures, and ideologies that undergrid the um, power and privilege and limits the oppressed group's own advantages. Uh, systemic racism that manifests is at least in four di di different dimensions. There's inner, interpersonal, institutional, cultural, and these are all uh, easy to Google under uh, internalized racism. I want to credit uh, Donna uh, Bivens of www.racialequitytools.org for some of those. Uh, we have another one by the American Friends of Service Committee that talk about do and don'ts for bystander intervention. If you witness public instances of racism, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, or any other form of oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment, please use these tips on how to intervene while considering the safety of everyone involved. Do make your presence known as a witness. Um, if possible, make eye contact with the person being harassed and ask them if they want support. Move yourself near the person being harassed, if possible, and if you feel you can do so, create distance and, or a barrier between the person being harassed and the attacker. If it's safe to do so and the person being harassed consents, film or record the incident. Do take cues from the person being harassed. Is the person engaging with the harasser or not? Can you make suggestions? Would you like me to walk over here? Uh, would you like to move to another train car? Can you leave them alone? Uh, follow their lead. Notice if the person being harassed is resisting in their own way and honor that. Especially white folk, you don't need to uh, police tone any of the people being harassed and follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident and see if you can do anything else. Um, do keep both of you safe. Assess your surroundings. Are there others nearby that you can pull in? Working as a team is a good idea, if possible. And can you and the person being harassed move to a safer space? Uh, don't call the police. For many communities, experience harassing uh, harassment right now, including Arab, Arabic, uh, Muslim, Black, queer, trans, immigrant, indigenous. The police can actually cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. Uh, don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed to safety and not incite further violence from the attacker. Don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It 
communicates approval, and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or too afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate that you support them with your body. So um, the first update I have to say is that in our last episode, we had um, a wonderful guest and we spoke a little bit about what happened with the Echoes Don, or Don's Echoes Baptiste case. And from the time that we recorded that to now, we have found out that they actually didn't uh, call the trial a mistrial and they actually did find the perpetrator guilty of murder in the first degree. So that is actually a huge relief from the time that I was on the air last time to now. And I definitely wanted to share that to any of my followers that have been listening. Um, I also want to talk about last Monday. Um, for those who do not know, I work for a group called 12 Community Safety Initiative. And that group um, hired me to be their Indigenous liaison. I'm also the chair of the Diversity Committee. And together we've we've come up with you know, different events that we've done. Uh, obviously, we care about all refugees as well. We've had World Refugee Day, um, a lot of Indigenous awareness events that have led up. But at a certain point, we decided we wanted to have more monthly conversations and have them focused on reconciliation. That was in 2016, at the same time that uh, Indigenous Reads by the government was launched. And that's like a hashtag that Canada can use to talk about Indigenous books and Indigenous authors. So we utilize that. We have a group locally here called Chapters and Chat. And uh, on Monday, we had our book selection of Seven Fallen Feathers. Um, you know, it's uh, a really hard book to want to put together, but I definitely want to give it honor and uh, in the hopes that people will listen to this and say, this is a book that I would want to read. Um, I had no problem lending out the copy of my book. It's really hard to get into this book as an Indigenous person who deals with violence, whether it's a slight comment that stings or the actual murders as in this book. Uh, one of the most renowned Indigenous painters, the Picasso of the North, he's been called, is Norval uh, Moreso. Uh, he's connected to this book. He is a grandfather of Kyle, one of the seven fallen feathers. Now, for those who do not know, this book is um, this book is about the the deaths of seven uh, indigenous kids, and that's why it's called Seven Fallen Feathers. Um, and Kyle Norvell Marceau's grandson is one of them. Uh, Kyle's father and Norvell's son Christian of uh, Kiwaywin First Nation. He was also in that. I watched some existing videos of uh, Christian speaking on his son's art and how well Kyle was progressing. Um, unfortunately, he was forced to leave for education and uh, Kyle had begun drinking from that sadness. Uh, he wanted to go home. And then when Kyle went missing, um, the video really focuses on the journey of you know, trying to find him and then identifying the sons. You know, and this was only one of the families. It is very hard to fully speak on a book when it's about real people and their lives and their families and their loss. Uh, any mistakes in misrepresenting was something I really was worried about in the club and even today, uh, something I, weighs on me. You know, I definitely laid tobacco for that guidance from my ancestors on how to walk that delicate path of talking about somebody else's loss. Um, 
I'm just going to read uh, to you a little part that came from Amazon. And this is really explaining what the book is about. And I think it gives good context. So in 1966, 12-year-old Chenny Winjack froze to death on the railway's tracks front, running away from an Indian residential school. An inquest was called for, and there were four recommendations that were made to ensure the safety of Indigenous students. None of those recommendations were applied. More than a quarter of a century later, from 2000 to 2011, seven Indigenous high school kids died in Thunder Bay, Ontario. The seven were hundreds of miles away from their families, forced to leave home because there was no high school on their reserves. Five were found dead in the rivers surrounding Lake Superior, um, below a sacred Indigenous site. Jordan Wabasi, a gentle boy and star hockey player, disappeared in the minus 20 Celsius night. The body of celebrated artist Norval Marasso's grandson Kyle was pulled from a river, as was Curran Strang's. Robin Harper died in her boarding house hallway, and Paul Panachis inexplicably collapsed on his kitchen floor. Reggie Bushy's death finally prompted an inquest seven years after the discovery of Jethro Anderson, the first boy whose body was found in the water. But it was the death of 12-year-old Chani Winjack that foreshadowed the loss of the seven. Using a sweeping narrative focusing on the lives of the students, award-winning investigative journalist Tanya Talaga devolves into the history of this small northern city that has come to manifest Canada's long struggle with human rights violations against Indigenous communities. Um, I wanted to tell you that a portion of these sales of seven, fall, seven Fallen Feathers will go to the Dennis Franklin Cromarty Memorial Fund set up in 1994 to financially assist Nishabi Aneski Nation students uh, studies in Thunder Bay and at post-secondary institutions and that nation's name that I completely butchered first of all I apologize um, but it was said many many times within the book and it was it was abbreviated um, to reflect the nation, but also the inquiry that came from that. Um, Jordan, um, oh, I guess I kind of went over there, the, all of the uh, names that passed away. Um, I, there's a lot of subject or a lot of quotes out there that were really good that I wanted to include. Um, one of them was this, now at least I can see something my childhood self couldn't that my ignorance was a luxury and that her seven subjects never had. I thought that was really a poignant um, quote because I think a lot of non-Indigenous in Canada just cannot understand the structural racism that's been imposed. They don't understand colonialism. They don't understand the Indian Act. They don't understand the segregation. They don't understand the underfunding that happens because people are Indigenous. So it is, it is a luxury, and that ignorance is what literally is causing the continued genocide of Indigenous people all across Canada. And it, it's part of our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls in Two-Spirit Collective, and today a part of the opioid crisis as well. Another quote I wanted to read is from uh, Ben Babcock, and he said, Seven Fallen Feathers isn't about blame, it's about responsibility. We all have a responsibility towards children as our future. 
The government has a responsibility towards Indigenous peoples. It acknowledges this, even if it doesn't always act on it. Settlers have a responsibility to understand how the actions of our ancestors have resulted in a broken and hostile system of multiple genocides. Talaga pulls no punches in these reports, and she has a quotation about cultural genocide right up front from the Truth and Reconciliation, Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report. Um, NAN, the Nishabi Aski Nation, and other parties released a two-year progress report on the jury's final recommendations on the second anniversary of the conclusion of the joint inquest into the deaths of the seven NAN youth in Thunder Bay. Uh, the seven youth inquest examined the deaths of, of all Jethro Anderson, who died in 2000, Curry Strand, who died in 2005, Paul Panachis, who died in 2006, Robin Harper, who died in 2007, Reggie Bushy, also died in 2007, Kyle Morisot, he died, died in 2009, and Jordan Wabis, uh, uh, sorry, Wabesi, he died in 2011. All seven died while attending high school in Thunder Bay. Um, after hearing from 146 witnesses with 185 exhibits during the eight months of the proceedings, the jury delivered 145 recommendations on June 28, 2016, directed at improving accountability, safety and education outcomes for all NAN students. NAN immediately called for progress on their immediate implementation and has participated through a political table and an education table. All of this information can be found online. And I think it's really critical. Um, I find that there's a responsibility in myself. Um, it's one thing to have a book club that talks about reconciliation, but it's another to talk about the gravity of what that means. Um, the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, those will probably be my Bibles, my, my Bible for life and, and my guide for life to try to talk about bridging Indigenous and non-Indigenous. But I, I have more to add to my list, of course, after reading something like Seven Fallen Feathers, because those 145 uh, sorry, those 145 recommendations that came out of that report, uh, the seven youth inquest, I think those need to be equally implemented. The over 444 recommendations that came out of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, those need to be implemented. Um, the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, that needs to be put into place as well. So for people who say the solutions are, there's no solutions. Number one, they're, they're not paying attention. They're not reading into it. They're not looking into it. Um, here in Calgary, they took the TRC's 94 calls to action. And in my opinion, took a really uh, conservative view of it and, and made what was called the White Goose Flying Report. And that was to honor uh, Jack White Goose Flying, who was uh, one of the people that had passed away here in Calgary at a uh, Indian residential school. And, um, so that it, it's an honor to him. And, and it's also to try to bring those 94 calls to action into a more, um, 
centralized location to this area because I think what to give the city credit is that at least they tried at least they tried as a municipality to see what that looks like for them as should all municipalities all hamlets all um, you know places that have a responsibility to know their territory and the surrounding nations around them um, you know I, rem- I was at a conference and this was when I was running for Ward 10 and it was a, a lawyer law firm that had put together a conference talking about the new changes that the Alberta government's laws had brought into the Municipalities Act. And there were people from all across uh, Alberta in this room making sure that as representative, representatives of their municipalities or their counties, uh, their towns, that they were aware of them and were implementing proper policy and one of the changes was that all jurisdictions have a duty to consult with the surrounding nations and there were a lot of non-indigenous in that room and there were few that were um even brash brash enough to be obnoxious about the fact that they didn't want to do consultation at all and that sending a simple letter to the closest reserve was so much of an inconvenience for them and I think that that dismissive attitude, you know, is part of the reason why we end up having all of these issues where people don't see Indigenous as part of their community. And they certainly don't see the, their role as being a colonial town on top of somebody else's stolen land. They don't see any of that. So these recommendations, uh, the calls to actions, the different inquiries, the inquests, the uh, Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. All of these reports are, you know, a part of our Canadian history that not all the children need to learn, but also adults. And I think that, you know, when you have a calling, and my calling is to try to explain to Canadians that we have these huge gaps, you know, this is available. This this information is available for others. So for our, our uh, book club, I had made the suggestion that we go over those 145 recommendations as its own separate book club. And if anybody is doing a book club, and, you know, I would love to hear from you um, if you've read the book, Seven Fallen Feathers, your thoughts, your opinions. Um, And also if you did read the 145 recommendations that came out of the Seven Youth Inquest. Um, Obviously, my thoughts and prayers are to all seven of these fallen feathers and their families. And I I don't know how to um, wish for healing for others, but I, I can tell you that my thoughts and prayers are with you. And uh, I lay tobacco to the NAN because I can't imagine um, today in 2018 me having to send my daughter um, hundreds of miles away just to get her a universe or a high school education and uh you know so my my thoughts and prayers are are with that community and these families and of course the actual seven fallen feathers and i just feel a duty to tell others about this book and as i'm sure the author felt the duty to write the book so that people will go and uh learn more because this is one community story and i'm unfortunately um seeing some of the issues that happen here in Calgary, we all 
have the ramifications of colonialism to deal with, and this is a part of it. So speaking of which, um, we want to give a big shout out to uh, Don's, Don's Echo Baptiste family uh, for enduring the last couple of weeks in the Calgary courts to hear the final verdict of uh, a guilty and first degree murder. Um, I pray also for your your healing. We've heard the gruesome details of how she passed away and that's got to be very um, traumatic. And I will also lay tobacco for your, your friends and your family as you go through that. Um, part of healing is aiding the, the, the families in the best way that we can. And um, Joey English's family wants to do a walk from October 2nd to October 4th from Bagani Nation all the way up to Calgary. And uh, if you can afford to give to them, if you can come walk with them, I think that would be part of that healing and, and showing good faith and support to families that are, are still dealing with ramifications of this colonialism. Um, October 4th, Sisters in Spirit Vigil, if you can make that. Um, with that, it's a heavy uh, conversation, but even for me, I find that talking about this and explaining to Canadians some of the issues that I have to deal with um, as an Indigenous person, just living here, it hurts my heart to have to raise my daughter in a place that I know treats Indigenous so poorly. And to have my, my friends, my neighbours uh, be affected in such an awful way simply because of their race. This is something that hurts my soul and hurts my spirit. But part of that healing is also walking with them on their journey to let them know they're not alone and to be with them. Uh, that's supporting my community. That's what it means to me. And um, I want to thank my ancestors, my granny, my mom, for being examples of what strengths it really looks like uh, through that example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong and walk into this colonial world and know how to do that. My stepmom for teaching me what proud culture is through her Austrian family and her roots and stepping up for teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. As you, it is through her that I'm a, a proud second generation Calgarian. I want to thank my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing this show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, and supporting my journey down the red road. He's witnessed decades of racism and sexism that I've had to endure uh, to our child. We're, not, we're blessed to learn from daily, and I'm really honored that you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a stronger and better person. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian. I want to say thank you again to my previous donors for showing their support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com or you can send in your comments or questions. We're also now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Native Calgarian is also up. So with that, I want to say thank you.